getting to a point of mutuality, which is what healthy dependency or interdependence is characterized by, is not feeling that sense of urgency mm-hmm. and being able to slow down together. Hi, thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White. And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being. In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office. We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests. Hello. Welcome to the Doorknob Comments podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about something near and dear to everyone's heart, whether you want it to be or not, which is dependency. Dependency, in my opinion, is something that gets a bad rep. A lot of times dependency is pathologized, is considered to be a bad thing. At the same time, and I'm curious what you think, Farah, you could argue that people are intrinsically relational, intrinsically social. We are born into dependency. And we might as well embrace it and look at the healthy sides of it while also being careful about excessive or unhealthy dependency. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think the quote that you had mentioned previously, can I read it so that we can sort of set the the tone for the discussion? But I mean, I was I was hoping I that I would read it. it. More organically, but go go ahead. Emotional dependency is not immature or pathological. It is our greatest strength. Far from being a sign of frailty, strong emotional connection is a sign of mental health. It is emotional isolation that is the killer. The surest way to destroy people is to deny them loving human contact, was said by Dr. Sue Johnson. She is a relationship expert. I think it's a good point, and I think it's especially important to talk about now as we're all sort of re-emerging from the isolation of the pandemic and things are opening up. And I think we were cut off from a lot of important connections for a long time. And I wonder if that, if you think that that has impacted people or that has contributed to sort of the mental health crisis. It's a strange time. I don't think we, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm speaking from my own experience. I think it's very hard to kind of anticipate what it's like, you know, to come out of the pandemic quarantine. The research during the pandemic suggested that people who were more extroverted had more difficulty with quarantine, which isn't surprising because presumably people who are more extroverted have, in some sense, stronger need for social connection. For me personally, I didn't find it that difficult to deal with the pandemic. I mean, one thing is, you know, I'm living in a family unit, so I have company, and then I'm doing a fair amount of things in my work that involve interacting with people, whether whether it's, you know, seeing patients or business meetings, not the same as meeting in person, granted. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, as a kid, I spent a lot of time by myself. And so I think I was well-equipped to deal with a period of reduced high-energy social contact, contact mm-hmm. which, you know, is very common in New York, right? Yeah. Like, it's a very socially busy place. And then how was it for you, though, when you did start meeting people for dinners or for social occasions? Did you feel like it was something that you had missed? To an extent, yeah. How about for you? Yeah, it was really 
tough for me all the way through. I live in a family unit as well, but really, really cherish, you know, my close relationships being cut off from that. And yeah, I guess you can still talk and text, but I wasn't as inclined to because it just wasn't as satisfying as seeing someone in person and having a laugh and, you know, sharing a meal. So um, that is one of my favorite things to do. And so being without it was really hard. Did you try doing anything during the pandemic, like having like virtual dinners with friends or is that sort of not the same? It didn't feel the same to me. I'm also, I think like you miss the physical component, you miss the unspoken or like the looks that are exchanged around like a dinner table. You don't get that on Zoom, so. Yeah, there's a chemical thing too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can only sort of visual and and, uh, auditory senses are engaged with Zoom (laughs) until they have like the Zoom um, smell upgrade or something. (laughs) I was talking about that today. The tactile, until your computer can reach out and just give you a hug. (laughs) Well, I mean, they they sort of have stuff like that, but that type of technology is not really there. You know, one thing, this is sort of digression, but one, one thing in some sense that surprised me is there wasn't a big push for the last year or two to use virtual reality for meetings. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, I think people had a lot of, have a lot of fatigue looking at like a little screen or, you know, you have a big screen, but there wasn't really, I don't remember seeing anything like about a VR meeting um, tool, which I actually think in a lot of ways would be better, right? Because you have more of a sense of what they call telepresence. Maybe, but I don't know how that would be facilitated. You know, and I think people were just uh, trying to survive. Right. Well, you you know, you need a camera that can take a, a 3D picture, which usually means sort of two cameras. But, mm-hmm. you know, they sell they sell 3D cameras. You know, it was just it was interesting to me. Like I said, it, it's somewhat irrelevant, perhaps. But I was surprised from a commercial point of view that no one really tried to sort of push that. Mm-hmm. Maybe just because people were sort of just wanting it to end soon. And so... Yeah sort of getting in too deep might not have been appealing. I'm thinking of how it sort of speaks to dependence on technology mm-hmm. because of course it showed how dependent we are on technology, but also like how good it is to have that as an option. Yeah, I think things could have been or, or would have been a lot worse without it. And certainly I think a lot of people will say, well, the work kind of got done or they found that people were just as productive working remotely. Well, for, you know, the question is, is, was it, is it a kind of a game changer? Are more people going to want to work from home? Now it's kind of proven that you can do it. Companies can't argue that you can't do it as strongly. Right, but don't you think that there's a cost, an emotional cost that maybe has something to do with this healthy dependency? Because this is, I would say, Um, I think it's an important topic. And I think sometimes, yeah, we can do without the human interaction or the water cooler chat or the, you know, sharing a quick joke. Certainly, like nothing is going to happen. But I do think it chips away over time at like the human experience and at the relationships that we've worked hard to build. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I hadn't meant to tie it so strongly to the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's a natural fit. I think last time we talked about boundaries as well. Mm-hmm. You know, this is sort of an extension of talking about boundaries because dependency is sort of one of the facets of boundaries, right? If you yeah. have over-connection, then boundaries are being crossed probably. Mm-hmm. If you're too detached, then boundaries are 
are are too are too rigid. Yeah. So how do people know really if the dependence that they feel or let's say the counter dependence that they feel is you know healthy? Right. So you're you're talking about counter dependence and then implicitly codependence like okay. enmeshment, right? Like um, unhealthy dependency, which is usually shared by two people. Uh, the relationship work that I've done, we we talk about when two people are are in a relationship which is based on the avoidance of intimacy. So, in a sense, if you're in a relationship where people long for intimacy, probably have a trauma history growing up where they they experience some kind of problem with their primary caregivers mistreating them or neglecting them. And while looking for intimacy are also unconsciously avoiding intimacy, we, we have called that irrelationship, like a IRR, irrelationship. Mm-hmm. And it goes beyond the idea of codependency, which is usually presented as something like a, an addictive relationship where one person is taking um, too much responsibility for what's going on in the relationship mm-hmm. to the extent that they're kind of neglecting themselves, right? They're, they're giving themselves away too readily. And a lot of times the other person is a taker, sort of abusive. Mm-hmm. So you can have people who are codependent on each other. I think more often it's sort of one person is codependent and the other person is either got a personality that's more on the narcissistic or antisocial side, sociopathic side, or, you know, is wounded in some way where they're willing to take and take and take. Uh, counterdependence, what, what, what is that? When the idea of being dependent on someone or needing someone is so scary that we reject it thoroughly and don't allow other people to help or support and just can't accept the caregiving that makes it us, let's say, really uncomfortable when someone does something nice. Would it help to talk about what counter counterphobic means? Sure. So the example I often use is someone who's afraid of heights mm-hmm. becomes a skydiver. So it's like a defensive reaction against a fear where the person goes in the opposite direction. And there's an analytic term for that, right? A reaction formation. So you're reacting against the thing that you kind of fear. And it has to be unconscious. You embrace the opposite and, and you think that that's the reality of your personality, but Mm -hmm. you come to realize perhaps over time that you're running away from something by trying to master it or master its opposite. And so so the person who's counterphobic with fear of heights, they they may have actually been aware that they had a fear of heights and they said, well, I'm going to become a skydiver, but they may still be afraid of heights, but they're no longer aware of it. Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to say if people were going to apply it or look for signs of healthy dependency versus counterdependency or, you know. Oh, like healthy dependency. Yeah. Yeah. First, you know, what does each one look like in a relationship? This is kind of your jam, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. I think that sometimes our dating habits can be shaped by that more than uh, we know, like that people can be really freaked out by someone who is uh, caring or attentive. And yeah, sometimes obviously there's too much is too much, but you know, if somebody can't accept any, let's say, uh, kindness or love or attention, then that's something for them to work on. Well, I'd, I'd be concerned a lot of times when I see that there is a history of trauma mm-hmm. and it, 
to some extent can be very easy to judge someone who seems emotionally unavailable, you know, if you don't look below the surface a little bit. And a lot of times, you know, there's something like PTSD there where someone who is close, you know, particularly when the, when the person was a kid, maybe a family member not only was abusive and may have been abusive in, in, in very intrusive ways, including bodily uh, ways as well as psychologically, would approach under the guise of being caring and would use the power in that dependency. The, de the dependence of a child on a parent is, is quite different than how you know, adults are usually dependent on each other, food, shelter, you mm -hmm. know, basic love, um, basic self-esteem. And so you know, just like someone who's in a car crash and has PTSD, maybe scared to get in a car, someone who has relational trauma at a young age may have sort of an understandable aversion to intimacy because first there needs to be trust and that can take longer to develop. I see this sometimes there are therapists who work in a very kind of close way. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of times they are pulling for sort of a connection pretty early. And for some patients, they need more space and understanding. You know, by the same token, like I understand what you're saying, but it's interesting. Like some people really get put off by someone who isn't like immediately reciprocating their strong, early and fast efforts to connect, which mm -hmm. maybe is, you know, their own survival needs. The other person needs to establish a close connection quickly in order to feel safe. The other person may need to take it slower. And then the answer is kind of healthy dependency is the mutuality right. and what is sometimes called interdependence, where mm -hmm. you can say, hey, listen, and then you have a conversation about what's going on in the relationship versus what you're saying, where maybe people latch on to a relationship early because it seems to meet a need that they have, but it's not meeting some other need that they're less aware of. Right. And then later in the relationship, they're like, hey, my needs aren't being met. Right. But I think that goes to, you know, what part of them got involved in this relationship and in these dynamics and what part of them can advocate for what's working or not working. And I think that is all about true growth and understanding. And some relationships allow for that, but many probably don't. Um, if there's an unhealthy dependency in a relationship and one person doesn't want to participate anymore, I, I would imagine that that could be the end of the relationship. It could be. You know, I think it it, it varies. My, my thinking was, if you have someone who is, quote unquote, needy, or let's say you have someone who's been in, in emotionally abusive relationships, and they've decided, okay, I'm not going to date anyone who acts like a jerk, like never again, I understand I'm attracted to bad girls or bad boys or whatever. <laughs> and they go on a date with someone who seems really nice, right? And they're yeah. very attentive and they're very praising. And very quickly they fall for that person. And maybe their friends say, I don't know, like sounds, maybe it's too good to be true. But of course you're in, in that state of like early attraction, you know, your dopamine, like hormones are up, your oxytocin is through the roof, the sex hormones are through the roof. And then, you know, sometimes not that long, sometimes a couple of months goes by and the person goes from being very sort of loving, seemingly loving and praising and appreciative to, you know, they start criticizing you a little bit. They start picking at things. And all of a sudden you realize that, you know, it wasn't really who they were, but you had kind of a liability or a vulnerability born out of some kind of 
less healthy dependency, which at the time felt like an oasis mm-hmm. or like you had found the one. And then when that happens, a lot of times people are really despairing because they were trying to avoid a bad relationship. They thought they found someone loving and trustworthy, and then they start to question their own judgment. And I think that's like one of the situations where you're talking about where it doesn't work out very well and where you can't really have a mutual conversation with the person because in order to have a mutual conversation, both people have to buy into that idea genuinely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it can, if that's something that happens repeatedly, be very demoralizing for the person who feels like they're always picking the wrong relationships for the wrong guys. Well, I think one of the ideas there that I find helpful is there's a, there can be a developmental like repetition mm-hmm. where let's say you had a depressed mother and the kid's job is to kind of keep the mother happy. Um, one of my co-authors, Mark Borg, coined the term human antidepressant. Mm-hmm. So the, the kid like does everything in their power to keep their parents together. And sometimes that means keeping them happy. And it means that the kid has to not have any kind of feelings of sadness or depression of their own. Or if they do, they have to kind of hide it away. And then as an adult, if you keep having these relationships that don't work out, then the depression sort of gets expressed where, where it ought to be, which is in the person, you know, as an adult, so that they can identify that there's a problem that they can work on. And then a lot of times, you know, that is like hitting rock bottom. And then they will start to really look at the areas where they need to work on themselves. And then they can develop not just the skills required for healthy dependency, but also more of the ability to not just pick people who are better choices, but also not to jump in and kind of take your time and get to know each other and and manage the tendency to get attached without needing to either be counter-dependent or codependent. But it's like a balancing act. Right. You really need a regulator, right? You don't want to press on the gas, you know, all the way, nor do you want to Mm -hmm. just sit there and park. Right. But I think the pace at which things develop is really going to depend on, I think, how much insight people have into their own patterns, how comfortable they feel. Um, A lot of times there's discomfort in the waiting. Uh, You meet someone you like, you have a date, or you have a whatever conversation with a potential new friend. There is an instinct that a lot of people feel where they want to explore that. Um, They want to get to that place of closeness, which I actually think um, is a healthy tendency, but how it gets expressed is different, you know, from person to person. Well, I think one of the things that comes to mind for me is that it's distressing for some people more than others to feel that void. And so Mm -hmm. that drives sort of that impatience to get close quickly because it solves a short-term problem, but often perpetuates a long-term problem, which is not making like good choices. Yeah. And, And even if you make a good choice, not managing it well. Right. But I think it's partially about the, the inclination, but also partially about the behavior. It can be tough to wait to see that person again, tough to hold off on the fantasy or making plans for the future. But as long as we're aware that that's what we want, but we're not taking steps to jump in, we're not saying like, okay, I'm not going to renew my lease because this guy that I've had two dates with is clearly the one. 
I think looking at it and exploring it and what it means for us is healthy and normal. Well, I, th- I think you're you're speaking to how one's judgment can be distorted or even impaired. You know, people talk about sort of having a crush or being lovesick. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a lot of biology there. You know, in the animal kingdom, mating happens very quickly, right? Yeah. But human culture is is a bit more sophisticated. <laughs> I don't know about that anymore. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure I follow you. What, what's the, what's no, I'm saying I think it happens pretty quickly in humans now, you know. Well, it maybe. does, but yeah. My point is it doesn't work so well. Right. Because there's longer term factors that come into play after the initial, you know, period of sort of biological mating takes place. Mm-hmm. Not to sound too much like an anthropologist or something. Yeah, it's really robotic. Well, I think a lot of times people have trouble dialing it back. And that actually can help people to be more thoughtful about the choices they're making. And of course, you hear people say, listen, well, I'm trying to take it slow. Mm-hmm. No, it's not that I don't like you, right? The unhealthy dependency comes out of, at least in part, um, an excessive need to be liked or to have the other person not be angry mm-hmm. or to be, you know, in general, in some way, in good with the other person and the other person's yeah. sort of good graces. And if you can't tolerate people being upset with you, right. then whose needs are you going to sacrifice? Of course, sacrifice your own, which is what we see all the time, right? And I think especially, um, I know there are men who do that too, but I think women are the the people pleasing and the, you know, wanting to be, wanting to accommodate and be everybody's friend and be the best girlfriend or wife um, that can get really, really out of hand to the point where, and you, and you see it also in new moms, who, people who just ignore their own needs completely. It's often gendered. You know, there's also a personality trait though called agreeableness. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I know that it's gendered and, and culturally bound, um, but I also see men who are overly agreeable and it, it kind of gets you so far in your career <clears throat> if you're very agreeable, it's, it's a powerful, powerful asset. But at the same time, for a lot of people, there's a phase in their life where they have to learn to feel healthy, putting their own needs forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might be negotiating like a new position in the job. You know, you have a dilemma, you know, should I ask for a raise and a better title? Or should I, you know, be nice and not ruffle anyone's feathers in order to get ahead? And ironically, you know, in a lot of jobs, what they're looking for is someone who can have more autonomy and assert for themselves because of that, that's who you want mm-hmm. representing, you know, your company. So people sometimes can shoot themselves in the foot by being too agreeable, yeah. especially if they're heavily conditioned to do to be that way. How do you how do you help people develop insight and choice when 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 they start to become aware of these thorny issues, these hangups? I think one of the things, you know, is to really start trying to assert one's own needs, to set a boundary, even if it means disappointing people. And so that can be um, on a small scale or it can be on a larger one. But usually someone who has been like hyper agreeable their entire life is not going to go in and like advocate you know, for a title change or a raise or... It takes time to build habits, right. maybe. But don't yeah. some people sort of suddenly change and really take a bigger step? Haven't Don't you ever see that? 
Yeah, I think that actually sometimes in therapy is a really great test run for that, um, where patients, even though it's uncomfortable, kind of to have someone there to meet your needs, um, they can understand that that's the arrangement and that's how it works, or they can practice it with people um, who are close to them or relationships where they're secure to say, you know, I'm excited to see you, but I really don't want to come downtown for dinner tonight. And can we meet uptown or can we reschedule or whatever? Do you ever role play with patients or, because what I find is a lot of times people just don't know what to say, you know, mm-hmm. as well as how to say it. Yeah. Um, or sometimes it helps to practice with a friend or practice in front of the mirror. Do you assign that kind of homework? Or do, you, or do you just leave people on their own to try to figure it out without any help? No, sometimes I'll try to provide I'll try to provide a little bit of scaffolding, but I like some of the things that they do if you've ever seen, you know, in teaching sort of uh, preschoolers, the teachers will say, use your words, right? Or um, why don't you come over and tell Dan how it made you feel when he took the ball from you, right? So the teachers will help kids find the words that they need to express themselves and to uh, sort of get comfortable with negative feelings or confrontation. And I think that our job as therapists is to do the same thing sometimes. So sometimes we do it as a role play or sometimes it'll be like, well, how do you think you could say that? How could you express it? And even just the permission giving, like, hey, you know, when you said that to me, it sounded very reasonable. And, you know, I think if you expressed, you know, those same sentiments to your team at work, it wouldn't be a bad thing. I think people are always worried about um, sort of losing control in those situations because you don't know what the reaction is going to be. So sometimes if you like test drive it a little bit, either in therapy or with a trusted friend, confidant, whatever, um, I think that's how real change can happen. What do you think the losing control or fear of losing control is about really? Like what if we don't comply, we're disagreeable, someone else reacts really poorly and it jeopardizes the relationship or it, you know, if we negotiate too hard, we can negotiate ourselves right out the door, right? So uh, afraid of the other person being angry, rejecting Mm -hmm. them, being abandoned. One of the, you know, things that comes to mind for me with that, which is related to dependency is something called um, social pain overlap theory. What's that? Yeah, is the work of, I I think uh, the researcher's name is Eisenberg or Eisenberger, I think at Rutgers. But in any case, they studied what happens in the brain when even something very simple, like the, the research subject is playing a game of catch with mm-hmm. what they think are two other human players, but it's actually like a computer game on a screen. And they're included in the catch. The three are having a nice catch together, you know, a game of catch, a cyber, cyber ball it's called. And then in the middle of the experiment, the, the two computer players start not throwing the ball to the human player. In the meantime, this is happening in an MRI machine. And so they're imaging the brain's function or as reflected by blood flow. And what they see is that a lot of the same areas of the brain that are activated by physical pain are activated by emotional pain, specifically Mm. the pain of social exclusion. Mm. So this is a very, 
adaptive thing that we don't want to be excluded from the group, right? Because, you know, evolutionarily, you know, that means you die. <laughs> you know, yeah. you starve to death. You get kicked out in the middle of winter because you couldn't get along with the community. You, you die, probably. Yeah. Um, but that pain stays with us. But on the other hand, it can make us fail to assert our individualistic needs, mm-hmm. which especially, you know, in Western culture, right, in, in the USA, rugged individualism is almost like a religion. So dependency is viewed as being almost always pathological, whereas in other cultures that are more communal, being an individual is seen as being a sign of unhealth. Interesting but I hadn't heard of that social, what is it called? Social pain. Overlap theory. Overlap theory. It explains a lot, I think, about healthy dependency and, and counter-dependency, really. The difficult part, I think, sort of wrapping up, is getting to a point of mutuality, which is what healthy dependency or interdependence is characterized by, is not feeling that sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. And being able to slow down together with the other person yeah. and become a bit curious and kind of say, let's talk about, you know, our like what's happening in our relationship and let's talk about our needs and how to balance them. You know, what is a healthy give and take? And mm-hmm. uh, one of the tools we use in the irrelationship model is a very simple tool. We, we call it the 40-20-40 because each person gets about 40%, you know, give or take of, of the sort of the share of the relationship time. And then the relationship gets at least 20%. Yeah. So you have to tend to the relationship together. And the way we do that is we actually would use a timer and each person gets a three minute turn and you're listening to understand, not listening to create your counter argument as people do. And when you're speaking, you're speaking from the heart, not to sort of implicitly or explicitly criticize the other person. I think that is ideal and that's something that people can work towards certainly um and finding a way for it to happen organically in their own relationships though the 40 20 40 makes a lot of sense i think for people to take that model and make it work for them one way or another is a good idea you know to some extent it at least ensures that people who tend to not have a voice Mm -hmm. or to let themselves get talked over at least have the opportunity to have that three minutes. You can say nothing if you want, Mm -hmm. but when that time is really carved out for you, people are much more likely to state their needs. Though if you're afraid of retaliation, you know, safety has not been established first. Right. But then that's, I think, another indication of things, right? That's, you know, that's one of the rules of that communication process is you're, you're, you're trying not to retaliate, you know, You're not, not quote unquote, allowed to retaliate, but of course, Mm -hmm. you know, no one's perfect. Yeah. So this is a work in progress always. And and you have that attitude, right? Like we're in it together. We're we're looking for a long-term win. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for a win-win in the relationship, not not to be right. And I think it's important for people to know that at baseline, dependency is normal and healthy. That's why I like the quote by by Sue Johnson, just allow ourselves to lean on each other a little bit. It's normal. I'd I'd agree. I'm a little wary of the word normal, but you know, it's, it's part of being human. And of course there's a lot of individual variation. Some people sort of are are less needful of that than others, but maybe I'll end on, on Sue Johnson's quote, 
-hmm. so people can kind of hold it and take it with them. Emotional dependency is not immature or pathological. It is our greatest strength. Far from being a sign of frailty, strong emotional connection is a sign of mental health. It is emotional isolation that is the killer. The surest way to destroy people is to deny them loving human contact. Beautiful. Like I said, she, um, you know, she started a form of couples therapy called emotional, emotional focused, emotionally focused couples therapy, Mm -hmm. which people can certainly check out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening today. And we will be back soon with another episode. Right on. Okay. (laughs) Be well. Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram at Doorknob Comments. Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.